Good morning, my sweetheart church. I'm always bragging on my wife. She's incredible and has all these wonderful attributes. One of the things that I love, one of the many things, is she's an incredible cook. When she's home, we have these wonderful, innovative, creative, nutritious meals. And when I'm on my own, not so much. Uh, I graze the fridge and I'll pull out um, together a, a pretty diverse collection of, uh, of edibles. The other night it was tuna and crackers and sweet pickles and red peppers and a chunk of cheddar cheese and a boiled egg and some raw cabbage. <clears throat> and uh, it's not a very cohesive menu, I know, but it's all pretty nutritious. This morning, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, we come to three seemingly random teachings coming one right after another. <clears throat> They're spiritually nutritious, but it, at first it's really hard to see that there's very much cohesion. They don't seem to hold together very well. But I think that if we look a cl little closer, we're going to discover that there's more cohesion than we might imagine. Jesus, over the last few weeks, has been speaking to various people, various uh, listening groups. One is the large crowd. We've seen the crowd many times. Sometimes he's speaking to his critics, the Pharisees and the scribes. And sometimes Jesus comments, his teachings are directed towards his closest friends, his 12 disciples, his apostles. This morning, it's the latter group. We know that because twice it is mentioned. First, disciples, and then even more specifically, the apostles in our story. So we know that Jesus is talking to his crew, his future leaders of his future church. And I think that's what draws all of this together. I spoke a few weeks ago about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a famous German pastor who was executed by the Nazis. Uh, his most famous book, the one I highly recommend, in fact, it's one of the few books I read over and over again, and you ought to write it down. It's called Life Together. Life Together. And in it, uh, Bonhoeffer is talking about what it means for us to live in true Christian community. What are the qualities of our life as a church? And I really think that's what Jesus is connecting theme is between these three small teachings today, the three qualities of the true church. I'm going to share them with you up front so you can remember them, and we'll come back and look at each of them. But here they are as I see them, three qualities of the true church from Jesus. Church discipline, faith, and duty. Discipline, faith, and duty. And it's not an exhaustive list, of course. There are certainly other things that the church must have if it's healthy and, and, does, and living in conformity to God's Word and will. But I think these three are particularly relevant for the church today. Discipline, faith, and duty. So let's get started. Our reading comes from Luke chapter 17. Open your Bibles or your apps. Keep them open because we're going to be referring back to it throughout the message, and we're going to start with verse 1. The first reading touches on a really important, often ignored, and frankly sometimes abused church principle, and that is the church, the church discipline. So listen from Luke 17, beginning with verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck 
and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is the word of the Lord. So the first of Jesus' teachings today, they come on, on the church, come as both a relief and a disappointment. It's a, a relief because we discover that the church is not and never has been perfect. And it's a disappointment because we discover that the church is not and never has been perfect. Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus, as he was teaching, as he was talking about us in our life together, he said, temptation to sin are sure to come. Notice that? Not might come, not may come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. The Greek word for temptations is scandalon, from which we get the word We've had plenty of those in recent decades, haven't we? Scandal, scandals. But originally, the scandalon was the stick that held open a trap. Take a look. Any moment. I know it's coming. There we are. That was the, that stick that held open the varmint trap. That was a scandalon. But scandalon came to mean any snare, any trap into which someone might walk. And Jesus, who is speaking to those who are going to lead his church, are going to grow and lead his church, he makes this prediction. He says, temptations, scandals, traps are sure to come even among my followers. But I want you to notice this. Jesus separates the trapped from the trapper. The trapped from the trapper. He says, yes, there are traps that need to be avoided, but woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, he's saying it's one thing to fall victim to a scheme or a scam, to stumble into sin because of your weakness or your carelessness. It's another thing entirely to be the trapper, the schemer, the scammer, the predator. And Jesus has little tolerance for those who use their power and position to lead their followers into scandal. How little tolerance? Take another look at verse 2. It would be better, Jesus says, for the trapper if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Take a look at this video. This is a, this picture. It's a millstone. That's what a millstone looks like. By the way, I'll just announce it right now. My next Holy Land trip, March 20. 25. So if you're interested, you might want to send an email. My phone was blowing up for a service. But when we drive, make our way around Israel, we're going to see all kinds of millstones. Leave the picture back up, please. They weigh thousands of pounds. And Jesus says, it would be better for you to run a rope through the hole in that stone and tie it around your waist and push the thing into the deepest water then would be your fate in God's hands if you use your influence to scandalize one of these little ones. Scholars differ on the meaning of that phrase, little ones. Some think that little ones simply means those who are little in their faith or immature believers. 
But in Matthew's version of this, his parallel to this same teaching, at the time that Jesus says these words, he is blessing children. He has children around him, has welcomed children to him when he makes this statement. So I tend to think it's talking at least about that. And I cannot remember a time in my life when children were at greater risk of being trapped and scandalized than right now. Horrific laws that prey upon our children who are sexually confused. Laws that steal from their parents their primary responsibility to educate and to protect their children. I've never seen a time when our little ones were more at risk than right now. And Jesus could not be clearer about that. He says, woe to those of you who would do anything to harm the innocent. Woe to you. Woe to you church leaders. Woe to you government leaders who abet such behavior. It would be better for you to go swimming with a rock tied around your neck than to face the wrath of God who loves and protects the vulnerable, the innocent. Whether this is a warning to protect our children or it is a warning to protect those who are young in their faith, it is a clear and hard and harsh and frankly frightening word from Jesus, isn't it? And it ought to be. This warning, this, this passion that he, Jesus has for the innocent is why we at Chapel Hill do everything we can to vet our volunteers and protect our children. It's why we've invested tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars in security in this last year especially to protect our children. And it's why we as pastors submit our sermons one to another every week. I do that as well. We submit our sermons to each other to sit under each other's authority to make sure that we, what we are preaching is faithful to God's Word. It's why one of our nine DNA markers as a church here at Chapel Hill is accountability. We value our system of governance as Presbyterians with checks and balances that work to prevent pastors and elders from abusing their power and the flock that they are called to protect. There's a reason that one-third of our denominational constitution is a book of discipline. One-third of our constitution is the book of discipline because we take Jesus' warning seriously and we want to be prepared for those times when we must intervene to protect our sheep from the wolves. That's part of discipline. That's the hard part. That's the harsh part. That's the punitive part. That's the scary part. But I want you to notice this. The purpose of discipline in Scripture is always redemptive. Always redemptive. For those who have been trapped, for those who find themselves scandalized, there is always a way out. And I want you to listen to the rest of Jesus' teaching on church discipline. When he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The word rebuke here means to admonish someone to, in such a way as to prevent them or stop them from destructive behavior. And one of the keys to effective church discipline is having the courage to speak into the life of someone who is behaving destructively. Having the courage to say, your drinking is killing you and killing your family. Your, your philandering is killing you and killing your family. Your cheating is killing you and killing your family. It is not worthy of the gospel and it is not worthy of someone who follows you. 
We find it hard to have these kind of conversations, though, don't we? At least most of us do. We, we don't like to confront people in that way. We, we frankly would rather talk about them. We'd rather gossip about them. It's much easier to do that than to lovingly confront. Although there are some who actually seem to enjoy these kind of conversations and they approach them punitively and judgmentally and there's nothing redemptive about that either. One of my life group members was stationed in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and he told us about the Muslim sin police who walk around the city with long bamboo sticks and any time they catch someone misbehaving, not praying properly or not dressed properly or not eating properly or not speaking properly, they will smack them with those sticks. Now, I'm not sure we want our elders walking around with bamboo canes after this service in the narthex watching you. But Jesus does call us to be more courageous about speaking into someone's life when they are living in destructive disobedience to God's Word about calling them to repentance. You remember that word? We just talked about it not too long ago. Repentance is simply this. You're walking one direction, and the Holy Spirit prompts you to stop, and you turn around, and you walk the other way towards God. That's repentance. When we rebuke someone in a biblical fashion for their behavior, for their own good, and for the good of the church, if they repent... If they stop and turn around, what are we to do? Forgive them. Forgive them, Jesus says. But only once or, or twice, right? I mean, maybe three times at the most. That's what the Jews believed. That to forgive someone three times was the max. More than reasonable. But God's grace isn't reasonable, isn't it? It is extravagant. Every time someone asks to be forgiven, Jesus says, you must forgive him. Last week, I got a long email from someone who really screwed up a while back. It wasn't his first time, honestly, but this time it was a doozy, and it was so destructive. But he sent me this note out of the blue and confessed his sins and shared the steps that he was taking to pull his life out of a hole and then he asked me, will you forgive me? And I responded, come back in a couple of months, and if you're still behaving yourself, then I'll forgive you. Is that what I did? Of course I didn't. I said, I forgive you. I forgive you. This is the only thing to say, because I know that God has forgiven me again and again and again when I have done the same sin again and again and again. We must forgive every time. I'll be quick to add this, though, and I always do when I talk about forgiveness. Forgiving is not the same as resuming relationship. There are some times when it will be unwise or even unsafe for you to resume a relationship. It is never permissible, however, not to forgive. So there's the first marker of a healthy church life from the teachings of Jesus here. Discipline. Passionately protecting the vulnerable sheep from predators and compassionately rebuking and forgiving those who have been caught in the trap of sin and who have repented. Now here comes the second marker. It's faith. Listen as Jesus continues. Verse Five, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, 
If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I wonder if this last section of teaching intimidated the apostles a little bit. I wonder as they're listening to Jesus talking about the importance of church discipline and holding one another accountable, if they begin to wonder, are they up to it? And, and so they beg him, increase our faith. It seems like a, a great request, an honorable request. Lord, give us more faith. Jesus' response, though, and i never quite seen it as I did this week. Jesus' response was this. If you have faith as tiny as a mustard seed. By the way, mustard seed is like a little black speck. You can hardly see it. If it was in your palm, you could easily think it was a speck of dirt. If you have faith as tiny as a mustard seed, Jesus says, you can do the, the impossible. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't need more faith. You need to exercise the faith you have. That's what grabbed me. You don't need more faith. You need to exercise the faith you have. We hear that word a lot. Faith is a, a real churchy word. I think it falls into a couple of categories. The faith to act and the faith to trust. Faith to act, faith to trust. What's the first one? I think there are times when we sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I hope so. We're a church that believes in the power of the Spirit. I hope that each of us sense those times when God is prompting us. Maybe He prompts you to approach someone and offer to pray for them for healing. That's scary. Or, or He prompts you with a word of knowledge you think to speak into someone's life. Or He, he prompts you through a, a dream that you wonder if it might be prophetic. It takes faith to act on any of those. Faith to receive those things and not say, well, that was just some, something I ate last night and giving me indigestion. Faith to say, maybe God is stirring me to act, to pray, to speak the gospel, to, to reach out, to minister to someone. Jesus says even a small seed of faith is enough of a starting point for your action, for you to get moving. And then there's another kind of faith. It's the faith to trust. When things are falling apart around you, having the faith to trust, when your finances are collapsing and you have no job to be found, do you trust God? When your marriage is struggling and the future looks bleak, do you trust God? When your children seem to have abandoned the church and their religion, their background, do you trust God? When your doctor just gave you some bad news and you're awaiting the test results, do you trust God? I think Jesus says even a small seed of faith is a starting point for your trust in God. I've thought a lot about this, especially this last week, because I told you this kind of grabbed me. I think if I had been with Jesus 2,000 years ago, I might have asked for the same thing. I know during my ministry I've asked for greater faith. I, I wish I had greater faith. I wish I had the faith to pray for someone and the confidence that they would be healed right in that moment. I wish I had the faith to pray for marriages that are going down the tubes and they would be turned around in that moment. I wish I had the faith to pray for someone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol and they could be delivered from their addiction right in that moment. I know it can happen, but I, sometimes I, I feel like I don't have enough faith for me to be the minister of that. I wish I had the faith to share the gospel in any setting or greater faith that God is going to really use me and use us to bring about revival in this part of his world. But I'm not a super Christian. I'm not a super apostle like Paul or, 
or Peter, although both of them would deny that they were that either. But Jesus says to me in this passage and to you, you don't need to be super Christian. If you have faith as tiny as the speck in your hand, faith to act, faith to trust, that's enough. Use the faith you have, and I will surprise you with my power. Tonight, we're going to meet for an all-church prayer for revival, and especially focused on our kids. I hope every single one of you comes. There are some, many of you that wouldn't miss. There's some of you who have never even thought of coming. Whatever. I am entreating you to come. I want you to come and join us in asking God for great things, daring to ask God for a revival that would blow through this church and through this community and through this land that desperately needs God's hand. We're going to pray for our schools and our children and our teachers and our administrators that God will not be banished from the classroom but will be very present and welcomed and at work in miraculous ways in the lives of our little ones. We need miracles of blessing in our schools and in our children's lives. We need you to come and join in that time together. Every one of you. Some of you might come and you would say you have great faith. Some of you have seed faith. Jesus says it's not about the quantity of faith you possess. It's about exercising the faith you've got. And so I entreat you to come and let's exercise that faith together as God's people. Who knows? Maybe this, like a muscle that you exercise, maybe this will grow our faith. But Jesus says, start where you are. So discipline and faith, they're two markers of Christian life together. And finally, one I don't think I've ever preached on before. I actually talk about it, my staff would tell you, we talk a lot about it, but I don't know if I've ever preached on it, but it just jumped out at me. So starting with verse 7, Jesus continues, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus says, imagine this, imagine a servant returns from the field and he tells the master, hey, how about whipping something up for me to eat? I'm famished and I'm, I'm bushed. And, and by the way, a little appreciation would go a long way. I'm working my buns off for you out in the field there. Would it kill you to say thank you once in a while? And Jesus says, don't hold your breath. It's not going to happen. The servant will come in he will get cleaned up. He will serve the master his meal before he gets to eat. And in the end, every good servant will say the same thing. We have only done what was our duty. And we listen to this and we wonder, well, is Jesus encouraging us to be ungrateful? Is he encouraging us to be rude to those who serve us? I don't think so. In fact, back in chapter 12, we have another parable from Jesus about the master who does wait on his servants in order to reward their faithfulness. But that was that parable, and this is this parable. And this parable underscores something different. This parable underscores something that I think is lost on most Christians today. Our duty. 
our duty to the Lord and to His church, our duty to our communities as witnesses for Christ. It's not a popular word. It may seem to many of you to be old-fashioned. Boy Scouts still take the pledge, on my honor, I will do my duty. I think they do, at least. Those who serve in the military, they understand duty. But for the most part, this idea is passé in our culture and in our church. I have a duty to perform. We are a consumer-oriented culture. We are filled with consumer-oriented churches. We entice people into our churches with promises of what we can do for them, of how we can meet their needs. And we soft-pedal the part where we who belong to Jesus are called to lives of responsibility to Him and to His church. Every one of us has a duty to the Lord. Every one of us has been called and been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve Him in some way. That is our duty, not handed down from a pastor, handed down from the Lord Himself. And I can't tell you what your Christian duty is, but the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you. And if, after an honest assessment of, your, of the way you spend your life and the way you spend your wealth and the, the way you spend your relational capital, if you would have to admit that you are doing nothing to advance the work of Christ's kingdom, then you aren't doing your duty. If you're a member of this congregation, when you stood up here to join you made promises to do your part. You made vows to give of yourself in every way. You have heard me say this a thousand times. This is not my church. Chapel Hill is not my church. I am a shepherd. I am not the owner of this church. But if you're a member of this church, you ought to call it your church. You ought to say, this is my church. Not that church, not the church. You ought to say, this is my church. And if it, it means, and if it is, it means that you have a duty to carry out what God has assigned based upon the gifts that you bring to your entire church family. But it is amazing how hard we have to work to get people to serve. The old 80-20 rule, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I think we're a little bit better than that, maybe more like 70-30. But come on, 70% out there, you 70%ers. 1,200 people on average are here on a weekend, and yet we still find ourselves begging for youth workers and begging for Sunday school teachers and begging for child care givers and begging for volunteer custodians and habitat house builders and greeters. You, <laughs> you know how when you go to a, hot, a potluck, you, they, they say, okay, if your last name starts with A through L, you bring the main dish. There's no negotiating on that. There's no calling a back and say, hey, could I just go for, for the appetizer? No, you are the main dish people. And more than once I've wondered, what if we just said, okay, if your name starts, how many have your name start with A through L? Last name, raise your hand. I, hear, I see you're timid about it. I've, 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 I've just wondered what would happen if we would say your name starts with A through L. You are on usher duty this month. No begging, no pleading, no cajoling. It's your turn to step up. It's your duty. <laughs> and I know duty isn't always fun. Sometimes that's the nature of duty. Sometimes it's unfun. The other night, Cindy and I went over to visit the brand new member of our church family, Rebecca Hackman, daughter of pastors Megan and Larry. There she is. She's precious and beautiful. You can just keep that name face up there for a while. It's better than looking at mine. 
We went in the evening, which turned out to be a good thing, because earlier in the afternoon, Rebecca had a major blowout. And it would not have been so fun. And it wasn't so fun for mom and dad either. But what did they do? They did their duty. They did their duty duty, actually. <laughs> That's what love requires. Out of love, for the sake of the love of Jesus, for the sake of the love of our fellow parishioners, we step up and say, okay, hard as this might be, ungifted as I might feel toward this, yucky as it might be, I got this. It's my turn. You can step back. I'll take my turn. My duty. Like I said, it's not a popular idea in our culture, but Jesus seems to be saying to his apostles and to the church that they would build and lead, if they want to be his followers, then they've got an assignment, every one of them. And when you answer the call of God's service, you aren't doing him any favors. We think we're doing God a favor when we give as we're told, serve as we're told, behave as we're told. We're not doing God any favors at all. That's the whole point of the parable that we just read. We are only doing our duty. So I would ask you, what is the assignment that the Lord has laid on your heart? What is the prompting that you might manage to stiff arm again and again that you're ignoring? Is there any way in which you are giving or serving or leading in the work of God's kingdom? If not, maybe you are not doing your duty. And I'm just saying. I want to close with a, a little phrase that jumped out at me. I've told my pastoral colleagues, anytime you read something that makes you say, hmm, pay attention to that. And this was my hum phrase for this text. Verse 3, Jesus says, in the midst of this teaching, he says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. I think this is the admonition that the Lord has for us today. Pay attention to yourselves. Every time we sit before the teaching of Jesus, every time we submit ourselves to the Lordship of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about your pew mate. Don't worry about what they need to get out of this. Worry about what you need to get out of this. Pay attention to yourselves. And so I ask you, what do you need to get out of this today? What is the Spirit prompting in you? Is it, is it about discipline? Would you have to admit, if you were honest, that you have not had the courage to speak into the life of someone you love but who is headed in a terrible direction? Are you the one that is so hard-hearted that when someone speaks to you, you are re rejecting their input, when you ought to be repenting and changing course? Maybe the area the Spirit is speaking to you is in, in the matter of faith. You need to dare to act or dare to trust God more in some task that seems un, uh, unbelievable, incredible to you. Or maybe it's duty. Maybe you need to stop looking around at those who are around you and see who else is going to step up and say, I'm ready to step up. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves because God is speaking to all of us. He's speaking to you in this moment. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet, once again, Jesus, we thank you for your words of life and of rebuke and of correction. Lord, we want to be the, the kind of church that you want us to be. And so we pray that we will receive these sometimes hard admonitions. We will receive them humbly. 
that we will repent once again, that we will turn ourselves to You. God, for those who, who, who need to have the courage to speak into a broken life, Holy Spirit, empower them to do that. For those who need to hear a word of rebuke, who need to repent, Lord, Holy Spirit, help them to do that. For those who need to exercise the faith that they have and believe that you are in, in, at work in them to act and to trust you, Holy Spirit, help them do that. And for those who have stepped back the whole time, who have been a free loader in the journey of faith, who are you calling to, to step up and, and take their part, to, to do their duty, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help them do that. Spirit, we bow before you in this moment. We want to be the church you have called us to be. And we pray that these words will take us one step closer to that. In Christ's name. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.